The Strange But True story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Well, hello there. Thank you so much for joining me today for episode 24 of Things Are About To Get Weird. I hope you're having a good week so far and that you're as happy as I am that January is over and done with. For me, it was the Januaryest January ever. And I'm very much looking forward to the more positive things that the rest of the year hopefully has to offer. Anyway, on to the topic of today's story. Now, if you've looked at the episode title and thought it seemed familiar, you may be remembering episode 15 when I told you the incredible tale of the Beatrice Church explosion. And in that one, I mentioned that if you're a follower of all things true crime, you may have heard of the small city of Beatrice before, as it was the location of a truly terrible crime, followed by a bizarre and fascinating sequence of events involving the group of defendants who would become known as the Beatrice six. As I promised in the church explosion episode, I'm going to take you through the whole story of the Beatrice Six today, but first I wanted to give a major trigger warning. There will be mentions of serious sexual assault and also child abuse in this episode. As you know, I don't like to dwell on distressing details of crimes, but there will be references to both of these and also murder, so this is definitely a heavy one. As with all of our episodes like this, there will be mental health resources linked in the show notes. So with that warning given, let's begin this story. On the night of Tuesday the 5th of February 1985, 68-year-old Helen Wilson was alone at home in her first-floor apartment in this small Nebraska city. That evening, she was meant to be taking part in her weekly coffee and catch-up session with her son Daryl and his wife Katie, but she had a chest cold and was feeling quite unwell, so she decided to call off the get-together. Helen had been born and raised in Beatrice, and by 1985, she not only had seven grandchildren, but five great-grandchildren too. She enjoyed playing bingo several times a week and was a volunteer at her local Methodist church, beloved by her family and friends. Just before midnight on the 5th of February, Katie suddenly remembered that she had not reminded her mother-in-law to take her medication and tried to call Helen to check in. When she didn't answer the phone, Katie and Daryl decided to let her be, possibly because they knew she wasn't feeling well and was likely asleep. But the next morning, when Helen's sister stopped by her apartment to see how she was doing, she was met with a truly traumatising scene. This is very disturbing, but tragically, Helen's lifeless body was found on the floor of her home, and it was apparent she'd been subjected to a brutal sexual attack before being suffocated. Parts of her body were bound and tied, and there was blood found in her underwear, on a wall, and on her mattress. But the blood was not Helen's. It was found to be type B blood from an unknown perpetrator, and police began their hunt for the person who had attacked and killed her. According to The New Yorker, the FBI actually developed a psychological profile of the person they believed was responsible, which laid out their belief that they would be a, quote, loner who'd had psychological counselling and collected pornography, and who was odd and wimpy, end quote. Several early theories were floated in the case. 
just a couple of years earlier, in 1983, there had been a string of unsolved attacks on elderly women in the area, and police suspected that Helen's murder could be connected to those incidents. They also theorised that the attacker could have been a religious extremist of some kind, due to the large number of churches in the area. That's a bit of an odd one, but I can only imagine that they had some kind of additional context to back this idea up. And it was also suggested that the perpetrator could be gay. This becomes important shortly, so keep that in mind. But despite their investigations, in the four years after Helen's horrific murder, the authorities could not work out who had carried out the crime, and the case had gone cold. However, there was a relatively new police recruit who had made it his mission to continue looking into the crime, a former local hog farmer named Burdette Searcy. After becoming tired of his work as a farmer, he turned his hand to being an unpaid private detective with a specific focus on trying to solve Helen Wilson's murder. In 1987, he actually decided to give up farming completely in order to take a job as a deputy at the Gage County Sheriff's Department, and his involvement in Helen's case became more official. By 1989, it's said that the sheriff was so tired of CSE bringing up Helen's case to him that he reportedly said, If you think you can solve it, then get it done and CSE took up this challenge without hesitation. It's at this time that we see the net of suspicion being cast wider than ever before. In an attempt to identify the culprit, or culprits, plural, once and for all, CSE decided to take elements of the FBI's profile and use them as a basis to question anyone who could possibly fit the bill. What it looks like this entailed was him seeking out anyone who was known to have had therapy, to collect pornography, and also anyone whose sexual orientation differed from the heteronormative. I know you can't see me, but I assure you, I am rolling my eyes. And it wasn't long before CSE had focused in on two people he believed could have been involved with Helen's killing. Former Beatrice residents Ada Joanne Taylor and her friend Joseph White. The pair had actually met in Los Angeles. Ada was a sex worker who'd lived in Beatrice as a teenager, and Joseph produced pornographic films. In 1985, they headed back to Beatrice together, as Joseph was determined to help Ada regain custody of the daughter she'd placed for adoption before she left Nebraska. Joseph was described as a handsome 22-year-old by The New Yorker, and it's also said he'd worked as a nude model in California. As for Ada, it's noted that she was a troubled soul who'd experienced a very abusive childhood and had been given a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder as a young adult. When they did arrive in the tight-knit community, the pair started to work on producing low-budget adult films, and it appears that word spread in the community about their ventures. Even by 1989, it seemed that gossip about Ada and Joseph was still floating around in the area, despite the fact that neither still lived in Beatrice. And when it reached the ears of Burdett Searcy, it prompted him to become suspicious of them, and he actually drafted an arrest warrant for the pair. Now, this was not the first time that Joseph had been wanted for questioning in relation to Helen's attack and murder. 
He was one of around 300 people described as, quote, known homosexuals who police spoke to in the immediate aftermath of the crime. Joseph confirmed at the time that he did not know Helen and he was ruled out as a suspect because his blood type did not match that of the evidence found at the scene. As I mentioned, in the years between the murder and 1989, both Ada and Joseph had left Beatrice, with Ada returning to her original hometown in North Carolina and Joseph to his in Alabama. So, CSE flew to both locations along with the sheriff and Ada's former therapist, Wayne Price to interview the two suspects and try to dig deeper into any involvement they may have had in Helen's death. I assume that Wayne Price's presence was connected to the FBI profile, as it had mentioned that their suspect could be someone who'd had psychological counselling. Apparently, CSE's key reasoning for wanting to interview the duo was because a local teenager had said he'd heard Ada and Joseph bragging about their roles in the attack and murder. So, on this basis, he sat down with each of them individually and started his questioning. And here's where things start to get quite strange. In Joseph's interview, he was asked repeatedly whether he was homosexual, and he ended up telling them that he had identified as bisexual for a while. He also reiterated again and again that he had nothing to do with Helen's murder, and that the notion that he could have been involved in any capacity was completely false. However... When the three men travelled to speak with Ada the next day, what she told them painted a very different picture of what happened the night Helen died. Within that very first interview, Ada confessed to killing Helen and implicated Joseph White in the brutal attack too. Whilst Ada eventually explained to officers that it was her who had suffocated Helen with a pillow whilst Joseph sexually assaulted her, she found it difficult to recall many other specific details of the crime. When she struggled to provide this extra information, CSE suggested that it was because she was somehow blocking out her terrible actions, and she replied by saying, I block a lot of bad things out. I always have. I have problems. There's a lot in my childhood I can't remember. And at this point, you may be thinking, Chai, as you said, this was where things got strange. What's so odd about this? It's a simple case of a criminal admitting to their crime when they're arrested and they feel the jig is up, right? Well, what if I told you that despite her confession, neither Ada nor Joseph actually had anything at all to do with Helen's murder? and that before long, Ada would not be the only person with a connection to Beatrice falsely convinced that they were guilty of being involved in the crime. In fact, within weeks, four more Beatrice locals would end up believing that they too had been present at Helen's apartment on the night she was killed, despite being completely innocent. Now, false confessions are very complex things, and a fascinating phenomenon from a psychological perspective. And I think this case is one of the most bizarre examples of how it can play out. Let's take a look at what on earth happened in Beatrice in 1989. So, after Ada's initial confession, both she and Joseph were taken back to Beatrice and they continued to be questioned there. 
from the word go, the police's methods for getting information out of the two suspects was, at best, incredibly leading and, at worst, extraordinarily manipulative, in my opinion. Referring to that first interview in North Carolina, Ada later recalled how she was told by police that she was at Helen's apartment that night, back in 1985. And when she was confused and couldn't remember anything about it, they would say things like, let me try and help you refresh your memory. And personally, I know that any time I hear about a false confession, my mind immediately goes back to the first time I watched the documentary Making a Murderer and saw the police interview footage of the then teenage Brendan Dassey admitting to a crime he very clearly, in my opinion, did not commit. I always think it's so easy to look at a story about a false confession and think, who would do that? Who would admit to something so terrible knowing how serious the consequences would be if they didn't do it? But it does happen and we'll look more into why in a moment. But regardless of how much Ada was coerced into confessing, there was one key forensic detail that didn't add up if what she was saying was true and she and Joseph were the only ones responsible. As I noted earlier, the perpetrator's blood found at the crime scene was type B. But neither Ada nor Joseph had this blood type. And so, CSE and his team theorised that all this meant was that someone else had to have been involved. From here, everything snowballed into complete chaos. Although at first, Ada would occasionally say things that implied she may realise she was not guilty. For example, she told a psychologist that, in her heart, she knew she wasn't there that night. It didn't take long before she accepted the narrative that she was involved, often spurred on by CSE and her therapist, Wayne Price, who was now working with the police as a psychologist. And these suggestions proved to be very powerful. In her initial interview, Ada had briefly mentioned another local boy, who she said was with herself and Joseph at the crime scene, but she wasn't able to describe him or provide any other information about his identity. By all accounts, the comment was made in more of an offhand manner than a serious one, but after the police showed her a photo lineup and asked her to identify this mysterious accomplice, she pointed to a picture of her high school friend, Thomas Winslow. Police located Thomas and requested a blood sample to see if he fit the type B profile. He did not, but was arrested anyway. Interestingly, Thomas was also a former patient of Wayne Price, having had therapy sessions with him. Within his very first interview with police, Thomas also ends up confessing to being present at the scene of Helen's murder, for some of the incident at least, telling Circe that he often goes along with things because he finds it difficult to make friends. In his notes, Circe made a point of writing that he thought Thomas may be bisexual. If you're sensing there may be a pattern here, you are not wrong. Next, a 30-year-old woman named Deborah Sheldon was implicated in the crime, and on the surface, it looks like this was solely because she happened to be friends with the other three suspects. She was a married mother of one, and from what I've read, it seemed that she had a lower-than-average IQ. Interestingly, Deborah also happened to be Helen Wilson's grandniece, and she had previously been psychologically assessed by Wayne Price around a decade earlier. I've read various descriptions of Deborah's personality and she's often looked at as being very easily led and passive and seems quite sheltered and sensitive too. 
perhaps for all of these reasons, combined with the overwhelmingly suggestive questioning style of the police, Deborah was the next suspect to admit to being in Helen's apartment on that awful night in February 1985. But that wasn't all. She soon told Wayne Price that she had had a dream about the evening of the murder and that in this dream, a friend of her husband's named James Dean was also present. And I'm sure you can guess where this is going. James became the fifth person to be arrested in the case on his 25th birthday of all days. And although he strongly denied his involvement at first, it only took a few weeks for him to falsely admit his guilt. When making his confession to CSE, he said... I feel that I remembered it in my sleep. I had a memory loss, which just kind of just, I didn't have no idea about none of this stuff. And of course, James's blood was forensically analysed, and I'm sure it will come as no surprise to you to learn that, once again, it was not type B. For weeks after his arrest, CSE and his team put pressure on James to try and remember whether there had been a sixth person involved, presumably out of desperation to finally find someone with type B blood to align with their physical evidence. Eventually, just like Deborah had, James began to see this enigmatic sixth figure in a series of dreams, eventually being able to identify them as 29-year-old Kathy Gonzalez, who lived in the apartment directly above Helen's. And crucially, her blood type was type B. However, Kathy was adamant that she would remember if she'd been involved with something so heinous. But Wayne Price assured her that it was probably because she was blocking out the memories to protect herself. Eventually, she was worn down enough to stop fighting. And although she never confessed outright, Kathy struggled to continue defending herself against the allegations. Now, whilst the six suspects all had some vague social link to one another, there were other far more significant and far more troubling similarities that they shared. Many had experienced trauma of some kind throughout their lives and often in their childhoods too. Some of the group had suffered horrific abuse as children, often at the hands of a close family member. And as I pointed out along the way, several of them had previously been involved in therapy sessions with Wayne Price. Some members of the group lived with mental illnesses and others were intellectually disadvantaged. In my opinion, it's painfully clear that these vulnerabilities were exploited by investigators in order to get many of them to implicate themselves in the crime. And then, of course, we have all of the invasive questioning and judgment regarding some members' sexualities and how this played into the police's suspicion of them for some reason. I'm sure this goes without saying at this point, but it feels to me that homophobia was rife throughout several parts of this investigation. And as I've already alluded to several times, the key tactic used by Wayne Price was based on a movement popular among psychologists at the time. The idea of memory suppression, especially as a response to being involved in a traumatic incident. And as we've seen in this case, it's a powerful thing to suggest to someone that they could be blocking out a memory, especially when you're in a position of power and trust. So with the six suspects locked in, the investigation was at an end and their trial was set to begin. Ada Joanne Taylor, Deborah Sheldon and James Dean all pleaded guilty without question. For Thomas Winslow and Kathy Gonzalez, it was trickier. Although Thomas initially thought he might have been involved, he eventually determined 
determine that he had no real memory of the crime, a conclusion that was echoed by Cathy. But both Thomas and Cathy pleaded no contest, due to their fears that they may face execution by electric chair if they tried and failed to prove their innocence at trial. For Joseph White, however, things were very different. He was certain that he had had no part in Helen's death, and was determined to prove it. And although it would take almost 20 years, this determination would eventually pay off. His trial was, in my opinion, a total shambles. The only evidence against him was the fact that the other five defendants had either confessed or pleaded no contest. And although he requested that additional DNA testing be done to prove he had no part in Helen's assault and murder, this request was denied. It's unfathomable to think about that now, but this was 1989. At the end of the trial, the jury deliberated for just five hours before returning their verdict. They found Joseph guilty, and he was sentenced to life in prison. This therefore meant that all six members of the group ended up behind bars, with many of them resigning themselves to the idea that they did in fact commit the crime, carrying the guilt of it on their shoulders each and every day. But Joseph's path was different. He spent these years pushing for that DNA testing he'd asked for at trial to finally be done, and for a long time it seemed futile. That was until 2001, when a change in the law in Nebraska meant that even those convicted of a crime could request DNA testing retroactively. But despite this law being in place, it wasn't until August of 2008 that the testing was completed. And when the results were returned, there, in black and white, was the proof that the Beatrice Six could not have been the ones responsible for the crime. All of the DNA taken from the blood and semen found at the crime scene was from one unknown male, and there was absolutely nothing to implicate any of the group members, or anyone else for that matter, in the crime they had been imprisoned for. The consequences of this discovery were obviously enormous. Although three of the six, James, Deborah and Cathy, had already finished their sentences by this point, Joseph, Ada and Thomas were still incarcerated. In 2009, an assistant attorney general made a bold and definitive statement regarding the case, saying that all six were innocent, quote, not beyond a reasonable doubt, but beyond all doubt. And this marked the largest exoneration based on DNA, which involved false confessions in the history of the US legal system. All members of the group applied for official pardons in the case, and these were granted. It was also revealed that police had found a DNA match to the forensic evidence found at the scene of the crime, stating that it belonged to a man named Bruce Allen Smith. His grandmother had lived in the same building as Helen Wilson, and it was evident that he had used his access to the apartment complex as a way in to commit the truly awful acts he subjected Helen to. But bringing him to justice was not going to be possible. Bruce had died in 1992, seven years after Helen's murder, and with this in mind, the case was now considered closed. But whilst the identification of the true killer hopefully served as some kind of closure for Helen's family, especially after the shock of the exonerations of the Beatrice Six, Joseph White was 
anything but ready to give up in his own search for justice. Can you imagine spending almost 20 years locked up in prison for a crime you know you didn't commit? Based on nothing but heavily coerced confessions from a group of vulnerable acquaintances, Joseph was adamant that the trauma he had been put through would not be swept under the rug, and he sued the county for violating his civil rights due to the reckless way the police conducted their investigation. Oh, I so wish I was able to tell you that after successfully suing the county, Joseph was able to take the money and make the most of the rest of his life as a free man. But sadly, there is yet another tragic and cruel twist in this tale. Shortly after he filed the lawsuit, Joseph was killed in a workplace accident at the coal refinery where he'd found employment. I know, it's truly so unfair, but in the end, his untimely death prompted the other five wrongfully convicted group members to continue the lawsuits on. They decided to do this in Joseph's honour, and in 2019, the result of the earlier 2016 ruling granting the group monetary damages was upheld. They were awarded 28 0.1 million dollars. This number was equivalent to more than three times the annual budget of the entire county. And although county officials tried to quash the ruling throughout, it finally swung in the group's favour. Although Joseph White was tragically not alive to hear the final ruling, his mother gave a statement to the media in which she said, my main objective in all of it was to see that his name was cleared and that the folks that put him through all that were held up to the light for the world to see. And a huge amount did come to light throughout these hearings, including evidence given by Nebraska psychologist Eli Chesson, who believed that Ada, James and Deborah were all suffering from Stockholm Syndrome and a quote attributed to him in the New Yorker states that... Price implanted his own belief system into his captive slash patient. The same article suggests that Wayne Price was pretty blinkered by his desire to help solve the crime, and because of this he ended up exploiting the vulnerabilities of his former patients, possibly without even realising it. There have also been many discussions about how the previous traumas suffered by the group members meant they were more likely to disassociate, and that they'd be more susceptible to believing false memories. There is a huge amount more that you can read about this case, and I would highly encourage you to do so. I'll be mentioning all of my sources for this episode in the outro, and I'd very much recommend reading the articles in full. There are lots more quotes from the police interviews and further psychological details that make the handling of this case by the police and their associates seem even more bizarre. There are a couple of points that I wanted to conclude this episode with. The first is that, from what I've read, it seems that there are still some divisions in Beatrice surrounding whether people believe the six were guilty or not. In my personal opinion, I think that they were 100% innocent of this crime. But in many ways, I can understand why some residents who were around for the whole ordeal may wish to still believe they were guilty. If you've been told something for decades, i.e. that someone committed a terrible crime, some people may find it difficult to suddenly change their perception of events, regardless of what the evidence says. 
Some people may not believe false confessions can ever happen because they think to themselves, well, there's no way I'd ever admit to something I hadn't done, so I don't believe they would either. But I think it's important to remember the context and the complexities of this case, not to mention the fact that there was zero evidence against any one of the Beatrice Six bar these ever-changing and vague, coerced confessions. And finally, I wanted to end this story by remembering that Whilst the focus of this case is most often on the six defendants, Helen Wilson was the first victim and it saddens me to think that she's sometimes overlooked. I know this case is sensational in its very nature, but a family lost their mother, grandmother and great-grandmother when Bruce Allen Smith decided to take Helen's life that night. In 2019, her grandson Bob Houseman gave a quote to the New York Times saying, she's the forgotten person in this. And honestly, that breaks my heart. As a true crime community, I've always felt that we have a responsibility to keep the victims we talk about at the heart of their own stories. And I truly hope that Helen's family have been able to find some peace now that the legal proceedings connected to her murder are finally over. I know this was a very heavy episode, but I believe that this story is not only fascinating, but an important example of how a strange phenomenon like a false confession can have such huge consequences. And also an example of what can happen when police work is done incredibly poorly. Thank you so much for listening. And just before I tell you all about my sources for this story, it's time for our weekly outro feature, Weird Media. Today, I'm bringing you the first ever music-themed instalment of Weird Media, and it's for an album by one of my all-time favourite bands, The Pretty Reckless. So I've been a huge fan of theirs since day one. I've been to every gig they've ever played in Manchester, and they've consistently been one of my most listened-to bands every year since they released their first single. And their most recent full album, which is called Death by Rock and Roll, has a couple of wonderfully and weirdly spooky tracks on it. It came out back in 2021, and I'd listened to a lot of the songs individually, but I kind of got out of the habit of playing whole albums through from start to finish. That was until this month when I started painting my whole house and took the opportunity to get back into listening to albums rather than playlists or Spotify artist radio channels. And what I found is that I completely fell in love with this album as a full record. It is so wonderfully put together and it's now one of my all-time favourites from The Pretty Reckless. But anyway, on to the specific songs which made me want to feature it in this segment. The first is Broomsticks. It's a 38 second kind of interval track, if you like. And it's very Halloween inspired and it has a great animation to go along with it too. The second is the very next track on the album and it's called Witches Burn. I saw them perform this song live last October and it was beyond amazing. Taylor Momsen's voice is phenomenal and it's such a powerful track, I love it. Finally, there's a song called My Bones, which has the most theatrical, kind of unsettling, but in a great way vibe about it. If you can't tell, I am really into this album right now. So if you also decide to check it out after this recommendation, I would love to know what you think. Okay, this is going to be a bit of a shorter sources shout out than usual, because I was lucky enough to find three different articles that were so thorough and so informative that they covered all my bases in terms of research. There was the one I mentioned from The New Yorker by Rachel Aviv from June of 2017. 
There was a fantastic piece from the Washington Post by Megan Flynn that was published in March of 2019. And finally, there was a piece from Oxygen.com by Jax Miller from July 2022. This one in particular focuses on Helen Wilson and who she was as a person. I would absolutely recommend checking all of these articles out. There are lots of ways that you can get in touch to tell me what you thought of this story. You can find us on Facebook, both through the main podcast page and also the private discussion group too. Just search Things Are About To Get Weird on Facebook and you can request to join the private group. On Instagram, our handle is at Things Get Weird Podcast and on Twitter, it's at About To Get Weird. You can also pop me an email too. The address is thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com. I've spotted a few more star ratings come in on Spotify and you know how much I appreciate you for those. So a huge thank you. Any ratings or reviews of the podcast are always amazing to see and I am so grateful for all of your support. Until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird but the good kind of weird. Thank you.